You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, you may notice that uh, the bumper there says a five-part series. We're arriving at five. We are, this morning, coming to the final section of Genesis. Um, And just to kind of recap, we've been walking through Genesis this year, um, sort of naturally. We started in the beginning uh, with creation, the garden, and that led us into after the fall, uh, looking at what happened um, after sin entered into the world and the relationship with God and God beginning to establish the plan of redemption that he had. Uh, the third section that we began looking at was Abraham, and uh, specifically at Abraham's faith and obedience and God establishing the covenant through him. And then this summer, we finally arrived at the sons of Abraham and looked at uh, Isaac and then Esau and Jacob. And this morning, the final section of Genesis primarily has to do with the person of Joseph, Jacob's sons. And uh, if you were to title or um, I guess put a title on Joseph's life and the story that we're about to venture into over the month of September, um, the way I look at it is it's about providence and deliverance through suffering. Now that last part we don't like. Give me all that providence and deliverance I can get. Just leave that last part off. But Joseph's life and his story is about the providence and deliverance of God through suffering. Um, before we just jump right in, I also kind of want to walk us back and remember how did we get here. If you'll remember with me in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram. And in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 12, God establishes a covenant with Abram. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So God comes at this point and establishes and defines the covenant. Here is what it is. Well, if you turn like a page over into Genesis 15, God comes back to Abram again. And this time in a dream, he reminds Abram of the covenant that he's made with him. But he also qualifies the covenant. Look with me in Genesis 15, uh, beginning in verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, and remember Abram is in a deep sleep at this point, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants or bond servants or slaves there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Are you hearing and reading that and going, hey, that sounds familiar I'm pretty sure I know something like that happened. Well, it's going to. God's talking about Egypt. As for you yourself, you will go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried in a good old age. And they, your people, will come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God has defined and qualified the covenant. Here's what it is. And now God says, here's how it's going to. To take place. He, he qualifies this with Abram. And he says that the waiting period, you're going to wind up, your people are going to wind up in slavery in another country. 
and it's going to be 400 years that they're there. But the waiting, why, why am I going to wait this long to bring you back here? Because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its climax. So see if you can grab a hold of this with me. It's going to stink being in slavery. Right? We're all together on this. However, that would not be as bad as if I left you here in the midst of the sin of these people. I'm going to do away with these people first. However, don't mistake why I'm doing this. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9. And now, of course, we know that this is after coming out of slavery. But God says in Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning in verse 4, he's defined the covenant, he's established it, he's qualified the covenant. All right, well, now he's coming back and he's clarifying the covenant. Here's the purpose. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, the Amorites... It is because of my righteousness or our righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And now hear this. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and... That he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God has said, here is what I'm going to do. Here is how I'm going to do it. And here is why I'm going to do it. And I am driving them out because of their sin. I am bringing you in because of my righteousness. Not yours. Just need to clarify all of this. God has ordained the path of his people beginning with Abraham. So we go back. Here's Abram. God changes his name to Abraham. Uh, Abraham is 100. He finally has the son that God promised, Isaac. This is who I'm going to fulfill the covenant through. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, Isaac loves Esau more and wants this to happen through Esau, but God has already established from before they were even born, I'm going to fulfill this through the younger. I'm going to fulfill my covenant through Jacob. And now here we are with Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who wind up becoming the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. But one of Jacob's 12 sons, the next to the youngest, his name is Joseph. And if you look with me in Genesis 37, we find out that Joseph is his favorite. You would think that Jacob, whose brother Esau was dad's favorite, and Jacob was mom's favorite, and their whole family was in complete turmoil all the time because of this, you would think if anybody would learn the danger of favoritism, it would be Jacob. Apparently not. Genesis 37, verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob, God changed his name, Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. 
But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This instance here and everything that happened before it was enough to cause jealousy and division between these brothers. Yet this is not where things stopped. Because as you read on, you discover that Joseph, he has this dream. And then he has another dream. And both of these dreams have these things happening that are very, very clear description of what God is telling Joseph is that all of your brothers and even your parents are going to bow down before you. You and I, we can read this and think, well, okay, so what did Joseph do with this information? Well, he goes and tells his brothers, hey, you're not going to believe this. I had this dream and y'all are all bowing down before me. Maybe you would share this in a, a tactful, subversive way. That's not Joseph's deal. He just comes out with stuff. He lets them know, here's the dream I've had. They would know that this is not like Joseph ate some bad cheese before he went to sleep. It happened twice. This is from the Lord. Okay? So Genesis 37, 8 tells us that his brothers said to him, Are you indeed going to reign over us? Are you indeed going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. But here's what's interesting. In verse 11, we read that the brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. See, Jacob rebukes Joseph after the second time that he shares this. Like, hey, are you crazy? Are you trying to like ruin the family? Are you trying to make your brothers hate you even more than they already do? Jacob rebukes him, but he knows that there's something about what Joseph is sharing, that these dreams are from God. And so he keeps this stored right here. He keeps the saying in mind. So at this point, the brothers, they go out to the pasture. They go take the sheep um, all the way to a place called Shechem. And they haven't come back. And Jacob begins to be a bit concerned about this. See, two of his sons had actually gone up to Shechem and because they had violated, the Shechemites had violated their sister, they went up and massacred a lot of those folks. So wandering up there with all the sheep, somebody might be looking to take revenge. The boys haven't come back. Dad starts to get a bit concerned. So he sends Joseph to find them, to feed them, and either bring them back home or at least come back with a good report. Now, where they were in Hebron, that's 20 miles south of Jerusalem, okay? 20 miles. Um, I don't think I drove 20 miles yesterday. They walked that far with their sheep. Well, Shechem is 30 more miles north of Jerusalem. They've gone 50 miles, all right? So Joseph, by himself, walks 50 miles to find his brothers, He gets there, can't find them, and some old guy appears and tells him, Oh, hey, I saw your brothers, and I heard them. They took the sheep and went to Dothan. That's 14 more miles. So Joseph goes, he's traveled a really, really long way to find his brothers, to take them provisions, and hopefully bring them back home. 
But Joseph isn't going to make it home, is he? Look with me in verse 18, and let's dive into this. His brothers saw him from far off, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Joseph's robe very obviously aroused jealousy because this was a gift from their father, and they loved their father, and they wanted their father to love them as much as he loved Joseph. So there was some serious jealousy going on here with the robe. But Joseph's dreams ignited hatred. Those dreams weren't from Jacob. Those dreams were from the heavenly father. And these guys right now, Joseph's brothers, they didn't want anything to do with listening to anything that the Lord might have to say because they already were bitter toward Joseph. So let's kill him. Look at verse 21. But when Reuben heard this, he rescued Joseph out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then here's the thought that Reuben has in all of this, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben tries to circumvent their anger and he steps in front of Joseph figuratively. But make no mistake, Reuben's not saying, hey guys, I got an idea. Reuben's the firstborn. And this is him exercising his authority as the firstborn and looking at all the rest of his brothers and saying, listen to me, you are not going to kill my little brother. I tell you what, let's throw him into this pit and we can leave him for dead. Because Reuben's thought is, he's getting ready to leave. He'll come back later when all of the brothers are gone and he'll rescue Joseph out of there and take him back home. If only he had gone that way, Right? Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it, and then they sat down to eat. To be very, very clear, the wording in the language here, when it says that they took his robe Um, This tells us that his brothers beat him severely. They didn't just grab him and like pull his coat over his head and smack him around again a little bit. They beat him. And then they took his robe and they threw him into a pit. Uh, I I had this picture to show you and I forgot to send it in to them uh, this week to show you what a cistern looks like in Jerusalem. Uh, I didn't send you that picture, did I? No, I didn't. Just confirming. Uh, That's how my brain works. Um, These are like 15 to 20 feet deep, okay? And as the scripture tells us here, there's no water in it. This isn't like a little five-foot hole that maybe if I could just get up the strength to jump high enough, I could pull myself out of. You're not getting out. And they throw him down in here, and their thought is, 
We're either going to let him starve to death or be eaten by animals, whichever one comes first. No big deal. They weren't going to kill him, but they really didn't have any trouble with the idea of letting him die. But just to get an idea of where our sin can lead us, did you notice what else happened here? Joseph would have more than likely, I don't care how bad they beat him, you get beat up by your brothers, they throw you into a pit. Maybe there's something in your head going, okay guys, this is really not a funny joke at all. I'm going to start screaming their names. There's at least 10 or 11 of them up there. I know the ones that maybe like me a little more than the other ones. I'm going to start screaming for Levi, for Judah, somebody. Hey, get me out! Joseph would have used anything and everything he had left in him to scream and yell for help from his brothers, screaming their names. And what did they do? They threw him in a pit, and they left him for dead, and they sat down to eat. That's messed up. Imagine you could hear your sibling screaming your name. And you're like, hey, could you pass the beans? Just ignore him. He'll shut up eventually. Hatred has overwhelmed these young men. They sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead... They had camels with them. They're carrying all this stuff. And they're headed where? They're going to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, Hey, guys, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? I mean, we're not really going to get anything out of that, right? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For, you know, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. And sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and he said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? Joseph's gone. What's going to happen to me? Then they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father. And they said, we found this. Can you identify whether or not this is your son's robe? And Jacob identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on a sackcloth and he mourned for days and days. All of his sons, all of his daughters came and tried to comfort him. Yes, the sons who secretly did this to the brother came in and hypocritically tried to comfort their father, but he refused to be comforted. And it says that Jacob wept. He was completely broken. And then verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. 
So Reuben's plan saves Joseph's life, but it didn't go as he planned. Um, Judah decides to intervene. Hey guys, I got an idea. I mean, what, what's good is it going to do us if we just let Joseph get eaten by vultures? Let's make some money, right? And then whatever happens to him, that won't be on our hands. I mean, you know, he's looking out for his brother, right? It's our own flesh and blood. What else could we do? But let's get the big picture here. The one through whom the covenant is supposed to be filled is now a slave in Egypt. I mean, isn't God like in this pattern of, wait a minute, that's who you're supposed to do this through. How could you allow that to happen to them? The very one that the covenant is supposed to be filled through is now a slave in Egypt. Do you understand what the sovereign God of the universe has done here? God takes the very sins of the rebels and uses them as a means for the rebels' deliverance. Because who's going to wind up 20 years from now saving these sorry dogs? Their brother. They sold into slavery the very one that God intended to save them. But hang on. Didn't this have to happen? Didn't God say Now, God did not tell Abraham, hey, I'm going to sell your great-great-grandson, or however it is down the line there, into slavery. But God said, your people, they're going to wind up there. It's, It's going to happen. Remember, qualify that covenant with me. For 400 years they will be there, but then I will deliver them, and I will bring punishment upon that nation. God uses the sins of the brothers betraying and selling off Joseph to ultimately be the very thing that would wind up saving them. Now, asterisk here, and I even put this asterisk there in your sermon notes, so I'd encourage you to really attend to that. Don't hear that and go, oh, so now wait a minute. Are you saying that we should just go ahead and sin because God will take that and use it for great things? The Apostle Paul says, absolutely, by no means. Certainly not. No way. That's not how God works. But listen, look at, remind, remember what the brother, and we don't know who said this, but back in verse 20, when they see Joseph coming, hey, Let's kill him, we'll throw him into the pits, we'll say that an animal devoured him, but then look at what the last thing he says is. We will see what will become of his dreams, stupid dreamer. What will become of Joseph's dreams? They will all unfold just as the Lord had shown him. God, what will he do? God will take what they intended for evil, and God will use it for good. Does that mean you and I should just, okay, let's just go on about and do good or evil, whichever one we choose. God will use any of them. Absolutely not. But you see here, God will literally walk Joseph through a nightmare in order to fulfill his dreams. 
God is going to walk Joseph through some horrible stuff that if you and I had choice A, what Joseph goes through, or choice B, pretty much anything else I can think of, I'm going to choose B. I will not choose the path of suffering. I will not choose the path uh, on my own of being misrepresented, of being lied about, of being betrayed, of being misunderstood, of suffering for the sake of things that in that moment I cannot see or understand. I won't choose that on my own. But see, God will sometimes walk us through a nightmare in order to fulfill what he has for us. And hear me, the walk will always be worth it. Always. Remember what David says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God sent him through with a sack lunch and said, hey, I'll be watching. No, because you are with me. Friends, there are situations and circumstances in your life. There have been, maybe there are, there will be, where other people will work against you. And the reason for that is because you love God. And as we saw last week when Jesus was praying for his disciples and for us in John 17, the world has hated them because the world hates me. There will be people that work against you and moreover that rage against God. Because they just want to stay in their sin. As followers of Christ, we should see great evidence in our life that the enemy is at work against us. That the enemy desires and designs to seduce us and try to defeat us. We should see the evidence that that's taking place because we are being used and useful for the kingdom of God by God. And Satan says, I don't want that to happen. It's going to happen. People are going to come against us. People are going to rage against God. The enemy is going to come against us because all he does is rage against God. There are even times that you and I are going to feel like the universe is completely conspiring against me. You're going to feel like that. But you know what? The universe has no capacity to conspire against its creator. And the God of the universe that holds his creation holds you. And so regardless of what you feel, the word of God and the spirit of God can affirm even in the midst of the valley, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the unknown, God is with me. Friends, God is sovereign. Just sit on your back porch someday for 15, 20 minutes and just praise God for his sovereignty. There is nothing in your life that sneaks up on God, that slips past God, that surprises God. God has never been alarmed by anything in your life or mine. God is sovereign. 
God is just. And you know, I think sometimes the way that we word things, we have this idea of like God is almighty and God is perfect and God is holy and God is righteous and sovereign and just. However, he's also, thank you, merciful and good. There's no however. It's not like God's mercy and his goodness to us are in contrast to his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. He is all those things. God is sovereign, God is just, and God is good. And God works for good in all things. In your life, God works for the good and for his glory. For your good, for his glory. I was talking about this with my wife yesterday. I think a big, a big roadblock, a fence that we have, uh, we've been taught this, not in American culture, friends, but we've been taught this in church culture. We open this up and we read it because we're hungry to know what's in here about me. Like, how come we're not doing a sermon series on like five easy steps to make your life better? I'll give you one easy step. Repent of your sin. Or or, or another one, get up this morning and say, God, help me to die to me that I might live in you. We, We dig into this and we're like, now where am I? Am I Joseph or am I Reuben? No, you're not either one of them. You're John or Kathy or Bruce or whoever. What you're supposed to be doing in here is looking for Jesus. That we would open this and that we would know him more. Did you see Jesus? I did. Joseph was his father's beloved son. So was Jesus. Joseph spoke on behalf of his heavenly fathers and those closest to him resented it. They didn't accept it. Same with Jesus. Joseph had a robe put on him by his father and his brothers beat him because of it. Jesus, in contrast, had a robe put on him by the very ones who were beating him. Joseph was sold for 20 shekels of silver. And you might think, well, hey, Jesus at least ranked 10 more shekels. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute. This was thousands of years later. But one of the the very ones who loved him, sold him. Same with Jesus. But you know what? God knew what Joseph would endure in order to save his brothers, to save his family, and to save his people. God also knew 
what Jesus would endure in order to save the world and reconcile us back to the Father. God knew it. He knew it all. And God works all things for our good and for his glory. As we close this morning, I I want us to, to just reflect on the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God. You guys know about the little encounter that Jesus had with a guy, Nicodemus. Nicodemus knocked on the door in the middle of the night and didn't understand what was going on. And finally, sitting down next to Nicodemus, at least I assume it's late. If I'm Jesus, I'm going to sit. Nicodemus, Jesus looked him in the face and he said, Hey, Nicodemus, let me sum it up for you like this. My father loves you so much. In fact, everyone, the whole world, so much that he sent me, his beloved son. And uh, I'm going to endure some things. But if you believe that God sent me, that I am the son of God, if you have faith in me, if you trust me, you will have everlasting life. God loves you that much, Nicodemus. Jesus knew what was ahead. God knew what was ahead. Isaiah told us what was going to happen hundreds of years before it ever took place. Look with me in Isaiah 53. Beginning in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We watched as he walked by and and everyone assumed that it was because of his sin that he was enduring this. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every single one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And I'm just going to say this to you right now. You can write it down if you want. There are things in the word of God that I cannot explain or understand, but you are about to read one of the most important verses in all of the scriptures. Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge will the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he will bear their iniquities. Friends, God knew what Joseph would endure. God knew what his son would endure. And it would be for our good and for his glory. I want to close this morning by reading Romans chapter 8 with you beginning in verse 28. And we know, and I want you to remember, Joseph did not have the letter to Romans to reflect on. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What can we say about these things? What what else can we add to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, not us. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.